Hey everybody, it's Alex from the Equity Team. We're gonna skip our normal ad because there's so much going on this week, but if you need access to Extra Crunch, use the code equity. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. As a quick note, we have an entire shot about the GameStop saga slash brouhaha. So if that's what you want, you're in the wrong place. Here, we're going to talk about startups, and there's a lot to go over. So I have Danny Crichton with me. Danny, how are you? Good. I'm looking forward to the six listeners who are still interested in startup news this week. It's going to be interesting. We also have Natasha Moscarenas here to help us talk through it all. How are you doing? Doing good. Big ed tech section in today's show. So everyone get amped. Everyone is now sufficiently amped. <laughs> this week's show has a little bit about Qualtrics, lots of funding rounds, a whole segment on the food delivery space, a little nibble on Clubhouse slash the media, the aforementioned EdTech section, and then as Danny likes to put it, an enormous fund at the end. It's going to be a really packed show. But can we start, guys, with Qualtrics? Is that okay? Let's do it. All right. So Qualtrics, in case you had forgotten, was a company that was going to go public a couple years ago. And then SAP swooped in at the last minute in 2018 and snapped them up for $8 billion. They changed their mind late last year and decided to spin them out. And we've been tracking this for a while because Qualtrics is one of the biggest startup success stories from the Utah scene, an increasingly important bit of the world startup map. It dropped an initial range that was pretty low for its IPO. We thought it was going to go up. It did. And then we thought it might price above that range and it did. So Qualtrics, 30 bucks a share. Danny, we've seen so many companies do this, you know, raise the range, price above it. To me, this reads that the market's hot for IPOs and Qualtrics is probably going to do fine. What do you think? It's definitely a psychology piece on the investment bankers. To me, the, the larger story here, though, is, you know, in two years, SAP bought a company for $8 billion, is going to put it back on the public market at its target IPO price valuation is about $14 billion, plus or minus and change. And of course, the markets will do what the markets do. But to think about that, they almost doubled their money in two years by just literally taking the company back out of the SAP maw and put it being back on the public markets. And that kind of relates to me, the Plaid Visa story, where Plaid got bought by Visa for like 5.3 billion. Now it's independent again. And now it's worth like double or triple its original valuation. So one of the big questions I have when you look at these sorts of things is how do you even approach acquisitions these days from a valuation perspective? Because, you know, if you're getting acquired at eight and two years later, you're worth 16, like why didn't you wait two years when the public market and private investors were willing to continue funding your operation? I think the late stage private venture capital markets are now systemically undervaluing startups not compared to their intrinsic value, but compared to what they might be worth on the public market. So Qualtrics, as we record to you this morning, has yet to start trading. So we don't know where it's going to open and where it's going to go. But certainly we're going to keep eyes on that. And we'll see if it's another data point in the IPOs are mispriced saga or whatever. But what Danny's describing there is the impact of Qualtrics growing for two years and also rising multiples for startup revenues. So move into startup land. And Natasha, we're going to Atlanta. Yes, we are. So this week, our own Ingrid London posted a scoop about how Calendly, which is based in Atlanta, has recently been valued at $3 billion, making it one of the most highly valued startups to ever come out of Atlanta. But also the story dove deep into the founder, Tope Awatona's backstory. I think everyone at some point has gotten a Calendly link. It's part meme, but also very useful. And it's a very simple piece of software. The fact that the startup has grown and had this really beautiful and intense story towards this huge valuation is kind of a quintessential startup story. And so I'm so happy that we had it on our site and are getting to get the background of a tool I never really thought twice about until this point. A tool, though, we had an inkling about how popular it was because VCs love to send you Calendly links and say, here's my schedule. You figure it out. For the longest time, I was kind of irked by that. I've come around to it because it's an efficient way to schedule things. They've won me over with productivity over optics. But I think it's also kind of a fast of the fact that we're all more booked than ever. 
And so I think these things have become from some people need them to literally we all need them. And I think that's part of why Jenny's evaluation went up so much. And the other piece here is all of our meetings are virtual. So it's a lot easier to schedule this because you're just staying up time slots. I mean, in the old days, I used to still do everything manually by email because it was like, okay, we're going to meet in Midtown, Downtown, Brooklyn, Queens, like Staten Island. You're just naming boroughs at this just point. Just naming boroughs <laughs> and that other borough. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think the magic here, I mean, to give you some some context of the company, it's essentially a bootstrap company. It's raised, I think, a total of $550,000, total of its life cycle of seven to eight years. It's been profitable for years, and it's now at 10 million monthly users, and just last year had 11x growth. So if you're doing the math, it's like, what, 850000 up to 10 million. And what's crazy is this, again, it's like a bootstrap business. 70 million annually in subscription revenues, ARR, wow. um, and is on track to get to a billion and sort of aggregate over time. When you look at all these numbers and the way it's been constructed, this is the kind of SaaS play we love on this show. And, and uh, more and more VCs, and this is part of the story with the founder, VCs are reaching out all over the place and saying, like, how do we get our money and how do we jam it in? What was nuts with this round they raised, 350 million from OpenView, that OpenView was in that seat. And I don't know how, but somehow <laughs> OpenView, which is a late stage enterprise focused growth equity firm was part of that 550k seat check. And so, you know, they had this early access and they probably monitored the company going on, you know, the last couple of years and who got the access? They did. This is why people do seats. This is why Sequoia and all the growth firms get in early because you get that access later on. And I think it's one of the best examples of that multi-stage thesis really bearing out well for OpenView. This is why we see Tiger Global in like a 1.2 million pre-seed round. And everyone's super confused about it. But don't be confused anymore because Calendly shows why. And Danny, I completely agree. We love a focused SaaS play because in the article, the founder jokes about how in some way addressing, we're not going to start competing with Zoom. We're not going to get into hosting meetings and video conferencing world, which I think is smart. They don't want to start a World War III, as he described, with Zoom, even though they have this insane and very easily connecting the dots from booking those meetings to start supporting them. I think it's smart that they're focusing and we don't see that enough. The way he described it was it's an orchestration layer. You know, they want to allow every user to bring best of breed technology into this web, right? So if you want to have a different video product because something new comes up, you want to schedule a clubhouse, go schedule a clubhouse on Calendly. They're agnostic in his own word of what products you sort of use on it. To me, though, the big question, I want to get back to this funding thing. OpenView just raised their sixth fund, $450 million. They're the co-lead on a $350 million round. But I think one of the big open questions in my view is like, how much did OpenView do compared to Iconic? Because the round itself is the size of the fund, essentially. <laughs> Their last fund was literally the same size. Regardless, huge success at Calendly, lots of cool stuff going on. I love seeing enormous success outside the Valley. We've been talking a lot in, the, in, in our world about, you know, Miami versus SF versus New York or Atlanta. Hell yeah. Big company out of there, big success, love to see it. And I think we're going to hear a lot more from Atlanta in the next couple of years based on the seed stuff that I keep hearing about. Danny, back to you. So we're going to move on out of Atlanta to a company called Rhino, which is in the rent insurance space. So to a completely new model, if you ever rented an apartment, you've had to put down a security deposit, generally one month rent or maybe up to three months rent if you're in one of those obnoxious cities. Obviously, that's a huge barrier to entry, particularly for young people who don't have thousands of dollars for their rent to just park in their landlord's bank account. So Rhino is designed to allow you to pay monthly essentially a premium that is a renter's insurance premium for your landlord. So in lieu of a security deposit, you would pay a premium. And they just raised $95 million this week, valuing it at just under $500 million, led by, as Natasha pointed out, Tiger Global, which is also in all these sorts of rounds. And they've jumped their ARR, uh, what they call contracted ARR, which is a very vague term. Well, let's discuss what that means in just a second, from $4 million in January 2019 to $60 million this last month. 
to me, it sounds like an interesting success. One little fun mea culpa is back when I was a VC, this was a seed stage company, actually a pre-seed company. Actually, it's like three people kind of company. It was still in like an incubator in which I definitely could have made a serious MOI at this point on paper if I had bothered to follow up and say yes. Let's pause, Danny. MOI or MOIC stands for multiple on investment or multiple on invested capital, which is you joking that you could have made a hella bank on this, but did not. Fair enough? Yes. I think it would be about 60x right now. That's better than GameStop. Ha ha. <laughs> oh, no. oh, oh, sorry. This is a GameStop free yeah, zone. Yeah, this is a GameStop but, but free zone, man. But clearly Rhino's doing super well. And to me, like, it's really an argument for some of the newer financial products, right? In the fintech space, I think we see a lot that's like, okay, banking, but online. This, but online. Like, this is a fresh new way of replacing a terrible old system, the security deposit model with an entirely new flexible system that's opened the economy to a lot more people. Danny, you completely just stole the point I was going to make, which is I've been confused to see why people are putting money into new insurtech startups that are similar to Lemonade or Root, which have been two companies that have had amazing public debuts. But Rhino definitely feels like it's in its own world. So I was actually excited about it. Yeah, I mean, I paid a lot of money in security deposits over the years. And it never felt particularly fair. And I would always get this letter from my SF landlord every year. And they were like, your deposit is worth X. You got $3 in interest. And there was always some sort of fee <laughs> that was like, you get minus $15. And I was like, so I'm get, I'm slowly bleeding here. Yeah. And in 500 years, I'm going to be broke on my deposit. So I talked to the company. I covered this round. And I just wanted to double click on the ARR figure because it took me a little bit of time to chase down because this is not software ARR. It is InsureTech. ARR, which is a very different beast, different margins, different profile. So ARR in the classic sense doesn't really fit here. And we're being loose by allowing it. So what does contracted ARR mean in this case? It means that the company has signed agreements with a number of landlords slash buildings. And at conservative, they say, projections of how much uptake they expect at price points they anticipate it should yield in 12 months. ARR of that figure. So it's a projection based on some assumptions. That doesn't mean it's immaterial. It means it's less durable than ARR we traditionally talk about. And so the issue here is premium revenue versus software revenue. It's tricky. It's growing, I think is what I would probably say most about, about right now. <laughs> Is it growing enough to be as confident about being pre-IPO than it is? You mentioned the great debuts of Lemonade. And if I can be a slightly annoying, the less stellar root IPO in terms of its post-IPO trading performance. But I think what we've seen here is the public market's willing to value insurtech revenue almost like its software revenue which means that the entire insurtech market was undervalued on the private side. And so there's a lot of excitement to put money into these companies while the public markets are so active. And then you can take them out as an IPO relatively quickly and make a fat return on your investment. You can make a good MOI, as Danny likes to say, in relatively short order. And so I think they're trying to position the company in that context, in that light. And so to me, it's great branding. Would love to see the actual numbers. I want to add one more thing before we move on. The other piece of success here, I, I think they got right, is their incentive aligned with both everyday users, you know, the tenants, but they're actually aligned with landlords. You know, when you have a security deposit, let's say that's one month and you cause $25,000 of damage to an apartment, your landlord can only really recover your security deposit back. I mean, they can sue you. Good luck. And it's very expensive. And you're probably not going to get a $10,000 fee back from the court system. What Rhino does as an insurance product is it's much more variable. If, if someone actually does cause significant damage, there's a way higher amount of money, I think, that they can get back out of the Rhino's insurance product than they would have from their own security deposit. And so they actually managed to make a system that was popular with both tenants and landlords, which is one of the reasons why I think they've been able to grow so quickly, particularly in the last two years as people learn more. But talking about fast growing startups, you <laughs> knew it. Dandy. You saw fast and I was like, this one's too obvious. This one's too easy, but fast. <laughs> talking about companies raising ridiculous amounts of money way too fast. 
102 million effing dollars here. Who's taking this? Alex, you're taking this. Yeah, so I've been covering Fast for a little bit. Fast, if you don't know, is an online checkout play. There is an enormous e-commerce market, if you didn't know. And so there's an enormous amount of effort going into improving the checkout process because any friction you can yank out of essentially buying stuff online increases the rate at which people finish their transactions. Fast joins a cohort of companies that have raised a lot of money to focus on this problem lately, including Rapid and Checkout.com and Bolt. And we did a little bit of math and something like 900 some million dollars has been put into this space lately, Fast being the most recent company to pick up money. The question is, why does Fast need so much money? Because it raised, I think it was 20 million last year in a Stripe-led round. And here we are again, not that much later on with 102 million. It felt um, rapid, as they say. Natasha, what are your thoughts? I was going to say the answer is because they can. What, two weeks ago, we had the e-commerce equity shot of five back-to-back rounds for huge companies. And so Fast, I'm sure, closed the round before that episode went out, so no one come at me. But I think it's just a continuation of that trend. And and how many people are really trying to make that checkout cart so much better now that everything's online? I don't know what else is new here or if Fast is differentiated enough to warrant the big dollars, but that was my take. You know, one of the themes we've had for multiple episodes of this show is corporate venture capital. And here you have one of the most extreme examples that I've seen recently, which is that Stripe has led both the Series A, which I believe was $20 million, roughly, and then also the Series B at $102 bucks. And I think the the magic here is that it's essentially a perfect complement to Stripe, right? And so I think the bet here with Fast is they have this unique connection. I'm sure they have a partnerships agreement. I'm just guessing here. I don't have information, but I assume they have some sort of partnership agreement. They're cross-selling each other, so cross-promoting. And so like if you use Stripe, it's fully integrated with Fast. Why don't you just include it? Now you have payments and a shopping cart that's super optimized and has conversion funnels. That to me is the magic here. And I think they're trying to use that as leverage against checkout.com and Bolt. The question is, okay, so the macro market is clearly very good for e-commerce. It's doubled literally in the last year in in the US and I believe also in Europe from something like 19-ish percent to like 33% plus or minus. So clearly there's like a massively expanding market for shopping technology. The question to me is how do you create a moat? How do you protect your asset here? Because you're not just competing with these folks, you're also competing with Shopify, you're competing with every e-commerce provider, every vertical supplier, everyone wants to get into this market. And this was the core thesis of our e-commerce show. But it just nuts to me to see another company, Fast only launched its product a couple months ago. It's like, okay, that was a good product. Okay, 102 million bucks, now go. That to me is the part that's a little bit insane here. Yeah, I mean, this, this magnifies a lot of trends. One, the corporate venture capital angle. To the idea that we're seeing rapid re-ups inside rounds at a rapid fire clip designed to put more capital in these companies that do have some success. And to its credit, Fast has grown its GMV process very quickly. They won't tell us from what baseline, but at least in percentage terms, it's been rather rapid. So if you're an investor looking at the start of a chart going up and going, hey, maybe if this keeps going, we're going to be huge one day, I kind of get it. I want to just throw a little note in there that on the corporate venture capital side, this is a play that goes way beyond the space. Just for example, Own Backup, which is a company that I covered in a piece about 50 million ARR companies earlier this week, they're both on the Salesforce platform. And I was like, well, guys, isn't that platform risk? And they were like, well, Salesforce invested in us. So, you know, a lot of companies play their own game. Slack has had one or two funds as well, trying to build companies on top of its platform. This is relatively standard. But, you know, do we need a billion dollars put into this space in the space of a month or two? That feels excessive. But then again, I'm usually wrong. So I don't know. That's my take. Well, talking about shopping carts, a whole different market outside of e-commerce is food delivery. And food delivery got an enormous 
I, I've never, I mean, it's absolutely absurd to me. I, I, I got to be honest, I'm going to put my cynical hat on for this whole section. So Fine. I'm going to let Natasha, who's way more excited about food delivery, because she's in Cincinnati and the food is, you know, what oh it is. Oh my gosh, uh, every week. <laughs> he hates, he hates the Midwest, even though he has lived here. Ramen cheddar cheese on top. Even though he has lived here. <laughs> we had three companies, I think all read by Anthony Ha, all on the same day. <laughs> Anthony had a food day, a food comatose or something going on. But Natasha, tell us what's going on. I'll run through the top headlines and then we'll discuss. So Mealco raised $7 million to launch delivery-centric kitchens. Zero, which is a plastic-free grocery delivery startup with actually a really interesting funding story, has launched in LA. And then Club Feast raised $3.5 million to help restaurants deliver meals that only cost $5.99. The reason I'm interested and excited about this is that it's a continuation of the trend we saw months ago of like the next generation of restaurants is not going to look like the ones that opened up a month before the pandemic and got basically screwed over by all the closures. Mealco, for example has a in-house staff that will do your meal prep for you, invite the chef who was taking a creator hat more than a wake up at 6 a.m., bake the scones and stay throughout the day hat. And I think it's an interesting purse of innovation to a sector that deserves it. So sorry, but that's how I feel about it. All right. I'm going to I'm going to jump in and be positive about one other thing here before Danny comes in and craps all over the stuff, which is why, to be clear, Danny's in the show. <laughs> Club Feast wants to make it possible to deliver meals that cost six bucks. This is not the first time we've heard of this, because if you go back in time, there was Spoon Rocket, and there was this great moment in time back in my first TechCrunch stint, so this is like 2013 through 2015, in which a bunch of people were trying to feed you now. If it can now work with better distribution, better technology, I love the idea of Club Feast. You're not going to get fed now, because the magic to Club Feast, the whole model is actually next day delivery. It's actually all about pre-planning. The way they're actually lowering the prices, if you believe it, and this is one of the challenges, I think, in the food delivery space, is food waste is huge at restaurants. Some estimates put it as 30 40% of all food is wasted in the restaurant business. You're, you're buying too many tomatoes, people don't order tomatoes at night, you throw all the tomatoes away. And so Club Feast is saying, hey, pre-order, select the times in advance, and so they can do two things. One is the restaurants can produce exactly the amount of food. They can actually order the food from the distributors that morning to prepare exactly the right amount of meals. So they save all the costs of all those ingredients that they aren't throwing away. Number two, because they know in advance all the orders that are coming through, they can actually optimize all the delivery routes. You don't get to select a time. They get delivered at lunchtime. So that flexibility gives them a lot more control over the delivery side of it so they can charge a lesser delivery fee. So it's like, that's the model. In fact, the founder was very clear. He, he was like, you know, Uber Eats and DoorDash and the others, they're still going to exist because people are going to want, you know, sushi on the spot and they want in the next 45 minutes. They're going to pay a premium for that, special occasions, etc. This is about people who want 10 meals a week at the right time. Just make it show up and I want to pay nothing. The Spoon Rocket tried to do that in a different model. This fits the same niche though of I'm at my desk and I want food and I can't eat any more instant oatmeal today because I'll cry. And so to me, this would solve my food problem. I don't want to pretend like this idea happened only during the pandemic. Ghost kitchens have been something that investors have been backing and people have been investing in for years now. The pandemic has just made it seem like a much smarter bet. Ghost kitchens are taking holds in hotels that are no longer being used as much. There's a lot more innovation happening in making restaurants, which already have very razor thin margins work better, which just feels overdue. There will be a winner. Maybe it's one of the three companies we talked about today, but there will be a big startup that makes it work. Absolutely. And I, I look, I have two cynical points here. One on Mealco. So I'm going to quote the founders from our story. We tell the chefs that they don't need to chop any more onions or tomatoes. There's Mealco software that can tell employees at the Mealco kitchen how to prepare each dish. And chefs 
can manage the restaurant from their mobile phone, which, I mean, they've met chefs. I guess there are chefs out there who don't like to actually cook food. But essentially, I actually took this as, you know, if some sort of TikTok influencer wanted to be a quote unquote celebrity chef, you know, there's this model where it's like, have the ex, I don't know, who's the person who invests in all the startups these days? Like, Josh, whatever his name is, he can have like his menu that day at a restaurant. He selects like a, a recipe and like Mealco folks magically do this and he can click on a phone like make meals for me because what kind of chef doesn't actually cut things? That's a good point. That was a little cynicism there. Fair. Two, the really cynical one. Oh no. Okay, zero. Okay, I'm going after zero. Zero is great. It's plastic free, except in the store ourselves. They note that they actually do use plastic. They just take the plastic away from the dish upon its arrival at the customer. They use plastic in the supply chain, and then they take it out of the plastic to put it into sustainable wrapping to deliver it sustainably so people feel like it's sustainable. So the direct quote from our story is, Zero does allow plastic at some point in the supply chain process, but ensures that plastic is not passed on to consumers. As I know the supply chain can't be fixed that much. You have to get chicken the way that chicken is sent from the farms. They can't really solve that problem from the farm, so to speak. They probably will solve it long term. But to call a company zero when there is literally plastic, I mean, if you're actually worried about BPPs or whatever the heck they're called, you know, it doesn't matter if they take it out of the plastic container and put it in sustainable wrapping to go on to you. So little cynicism, but obviously a lot of investment going on into the food delivery space. Any other thoughts before we move on? I was just going to give a shout out to one of my favorite stories from last year, which was when Zoom, the pizza robot startup. Yeah. That definitely had a lot of SoftBank layoffs slash drama announced its plastic-free sugarcane-based pizza box. We should 100% check in on them. <laughs> yes, the, the the best pivot of all time from, <laughs> from, from robot pizza delivery to sustainable pizza box manufacturing. That the was a good best. one. That was great. Anyway, speaking of great well, things. Those were fun days. You know what else is fun? Clubhouse is fun. Clubhouse, Natasha, raised a lot of money at a really high price. Because apparently people listen to other people talking in this world. What happened over there? People were freaking out that Clubhouse, an audio-based social media platform, had a $100 million valuation in private beta. And over the weekend, the information with a byline that included Kate Clark, an alumni of this show, broke news that they have secured new investment at a $1 billion valuation. And so obviously that created a lot of stir we talked about it on the Monday show, so we don't need to talk about it too much. The point I wanted to double click on and maybe give a little context on is people are freaking out that they haven't made any money yet with 2 million users. I'm not freaking out because I don't think startups, a lot of startups don't make money until one day they do. But I'm curious what you guys think about the anger toward the valuation and the monetization or, or lack thereof. Eh, eh, eh. It's not my money. I don't care. Value whatever we want. Value for a trillion dollars. I don't care. I mean, like, we're going to eventually want to see how that stacks up on a revenue multiple basis, but Clubhouse is still a private beta. You have to invite people to show up. So if Andreessen wants to drop a hundy at them out of Billy, I don't give I'm fine. It's their LP's money. It's not, no sweat off my back. What I'll say, though, is like, you know, we've used Clubhouse a little bit lately. It's fine. Pretty cool. I struggle to see how it will monetize to the level that it needs to. But at the same time, it certainly has attracted a user base. So let's see. Public.com, which is in the news lately in the stock trading saga, is also not super focused on monetization. It has raised a bunch of money at a very high price. This is a gamble some investors are willing to take. It used to be very popular. It became less popular in the SaaS era in which everything became about net dollar retention and your LTV to CAC ratio. So this feels like a throwback to like the fun days of startup investing. Like, here's a thing people like. Let's pour money on it and see what happens. Fun. There's 180 investors in the round. I think one of the magics to this story, and we're also seeing this with Substack and a lot of the new media companies, is that VCs are not just backing the company itself. They're also backing funds to fund the creators that are building on top of these platforms. Or the companies are using their VC money to do the same thing. Doesn't really matter. 
point is, is that nowadays it's not uncommon to buy creators to bring onto the platform. We saw this with, I believe, Ninja. Not that I know esports well, but like when Microsoft brought Ninja over to whatever their platform is called. Mixer. We're seeing this in a lot of on YouTube. It's all about exclusivities. It's all about getting the right creators on the platform. And I think you're seeing that with both 180 investors. Clearly, many of those are creators themselves, as well as the funds going towards building out the platform. So a lot of stuff going on there. I'm going to move us on over to a company that starts with C that I like a lot more called Class Dojo. They raised $30 million in a round led by solo capitalist Josh Buckley, who is the Product Hunt CEO, but also has his own fund. Class Dojo is an interesting story because they spent eight years very openly and loudly saying, we have no plans to make revenue or monetize. We're just going to be free for parents and teachers to use. For people who don't know, Class Dojo is a communication platform, kind of like Instagram stories that students can use and parents and teachers get to be part of the student's day and after. Then the pandemic hit and they began selling a premium product that helped augment what happens beyond school. And that's literally the name of the product. They teach kids how to be empathetic and how to have dinner table conversations and also just kind of add some structure to their day. You get a point for activities or a point for doing your homework. It's just gamified chores in a way. But we're seeing Class Dojo now use the 51 million users that they got for free and finally monetize them. And so it's a clubhouse angle in a way, but it's also a cool way that a startup is finally bringing in profits. What's your take on how they're approaching monetization? Do you think it's smart? Is it too oppressive? Is it going to resonate? Because you know EdTech so much better than I do. How does this look from your perspective? I think a big problem with EdTech consumer businesses is that it can increase the digital divide. You make the parents that can pay for out school, for example, they get to have all the supplemental services and then no one else gets really anything. Class Dojo has a great argument that it's not contributing to the digital divide because its core product, which is this teacher, parent, kid communication platform, has always been free and will always be free. So I think their monetization aspect is kind of like Duolingo, like let's make 3% of our users with the deepest pockets pay versus all the users pay. So I think that they're able to honestly do it pretty well. And the fact that they were profitable four months after launching Beyond School pre-pandemic shows me that it's not just a pandemic trend. And then you've been talking to a lot of EdTech investors lately. I think you actually did a survey on this for the site. Does this trend of EdTech companies putting off monetization fit into kind of the general investment thesis we're hearing from VCs? Or is this a bit of a standout from the mix of most EdTech successes we've heard about lately? If you look at any successful EdTech company, whether that's Duolingo or if you can call it successful at this point, Masterclass, a lot of them are not necessarily trying to make your kindergarten class work better. They are tangential. And this is a continued story. That's what investors are getting at now is like, we're not going to say that K through 12 is going to go back to normal post pandemic. So we're not going to invest in startups that are trying to make K through 12 work better. We're going to start working on all the supplemental education services. And I'm curious what you guys think. But the big thesis from EdTech investors that I talk about in my survey is that lifelong learning is the future. We're going to start investing in companies that support the entire learning experience of a kid, not just what happens during their school day. Yeah, I was just talking to the founder of Moonfire over in Europe yesterday for Startup Grind. They've had me out for a couple of interviews. It's been a lot of fun. Formerly the founder of Atomico. And we were talking about the future of work. And he brought up reskilling. And, <laughs> and I was like, that's a hard pivot. And then as you talked to me through, I kind of got it. So I think your point about long-term learning as a long-term trend and theme in ed tech broadly works, but it also fits in the future of work because it's how people will actually work in the future. So I, there's a lot here, but I, I don't know. 
I'm, I'm fascinated to see where it goes. Danny, I'm always curious what you're thinking because I know you had covered ed tech before it was cool with Teachable <laughs> and all the other startups that were out there. Are you hearing conversations about this? What are your thoughts? I think one of the big things that you have to look at is people are learning from each other, right? So Class Dojo had its approach of getting users over time. And now it's looking at other startups in the space and going, oh, they're making money this way. And in some ways, they're at the best of both worlds. They're like, we can copy that business model. We can copy that approach to making money on these users. But we already have 60 million users. So we actually have the base, whereas those other companies have interesting models, but may not the users on top of them. So we see this in fintech. We see this in e-commerce and a lot of other places. People learn from each other. They're borrowing each other's models. You know, now there are 50 different Robin Hoods out there. You know, I think the same thing you're seeing in EdTech. I want to complete the show because we're almost out of time. Real quick story and then a deeper story. TCV this week raised a $4 billion growth fund focused on e-commerce, fintech, edtech, travel, everything. Um, There's nothing they won't invest in with that kind of money. (laughs) That's their 11th fund. What's crazy is it's 1 billion more than their previous fund. But the number that blew my mind is that over the 25 years that TCV has been investing, they've raised $14 billion. So four of 14 is in their most recent fund. The other 10 funds were 10 billion total. So just an incredible amount of money at TCV. And then we have another story out here, a new angel group, two female partners of an angel fund out of Nigeria, focused on funding female entrepreneurs in West Africa and throughout Africa in general, already written six checks, providing between 15,000 to 25,000. They do female-led teams or teams in which there is a female with an equal partnership on the co-founding team. And they're in particular responding to the fact that a lot of venture capital is not particularly diverse. Less than 5% in almost all geos goes to women. It actually declined last year in the middle of the pandemic, mostly, I think, because people couldn't meet each other. So a lot of those male VCs were meeting their male friends and investing in folks they already knew rather than finding new entrepreneurs who are willing to open up. So an interesting new angel fund there. I just want to say that we hear a lot from people about how they're just investing in kind of what they see and there's not a lot of deal flow in women-led startups or black-led startups. Well, First Check has received over 600 applications so far from African female-led startups. So how about that? There's a lot of companies out there that don't look like Chad and Danny from Stanford. And I just want to point out that that means that people aren't trying hard enough to find them. And I only make fun of Danny because he and I share a similar uh, complexion and gender. But this is exciting to me. I want to see more of this. I want to see more investment in underserved areas. And I want to see more investment around the world. But we are out of time. That's our show. Hugs from the Equity Crew. We'll talk to you guys Monday morning. Bye.